Welcome back to Your 1230, the only podcast where our guests tell their story with the help of 12 questions in 30 minutes. Today, we are really excited to be joined by Jeremy Casey. Jeremy's the managing partner of SR Commercial Realty, where he runs daily operations and major accounts for the brokerage. SR Commercial is a full-service commercial brokerage currently representing over 120 listings in Massachusetts and Connecticut. Jeremy has more than 14 years of commercial real estate experience between SR Commercial and his previous capacities as a commercial lender at both local and regional financial institutions, concentrating on real estate lending. Jeremy, welcome. We are really excited to talk to you today. Yeah, thanks for having me. You got it. You got it. So I guess I'll start there. How did the background in uh, lending help uh, when you moved to the commercial uh, brokerage side? Uh, it actually helped a ton. Um uh, banking was never like when I was a commercial lender, it was never going to be my career for with longevity. It was more about tr really trying to understand how banks finance a deal, how to underwrite a deal, um, how to creatively finance a deal. And so once I got that, because once I got that acumen and skill set, um, I really looked at how and where could I apply it. And um, I had always wanted to get my real estate license. And when I was in banking, I remember when I was like early, early on, I was like, I'd love to get my license. And they're like, no, that's a conflict of interest. At that point, I didn't understand why it was, but, you know, inevitably it ended up going in that direction. And as to get to your question, I think it's probably one of the biggest competitive advantages we have. And I also look at the fact that our deal flow the success rate of pending transactions um, coming to close is much higher, I would say, than most other brokerages. And the reason being is because we have the ability to figure out creative ideas in the event of a pinch when it comes to financing. The way that most deals die are by attorneys, banks, or appraisers, or environmental assessment. And one of the biggest ones which has the ultimate say is the bank because the bank is affected by all of those three other parties. So if we can figure out a more like whether it's bridge financing, whether it's additional financing, we can actually get more for our sellers because of whether it's assumptions and assignments of notes, seller finance opportunities, a lot of different things. I think it really brings a much better opportunity into a commercial real estate deal or transaction as opposed to just brokering it. And that makes a ton of sense. Do a lot of people take that path that you have, or is it kind of uh, specific to, to your journey? As far as this market, I don't know of any other broker in this market um, that has that's come from commercial commercial lending. Reason being is um, banks in general try to, in my opinion, hogtie you with all of their benefits and pensions and all that great stuff, and they also frown upon you having a side hustle. So. Um, my thoughts are there's probably not a lot of people that leave banking and then, you know, just go start from scratch, you know, once you have that really cushy job, pension, et cetera, and benefits, and then leave and be like, nah, I'm going to start a real estate company. So <laughs> I don't know if there's ton, but I can tell you in this market, I don't believe there's any. Okay. First off, excellent use of the word hog tie there. Uh, second, if I could follow up, uh, you mentioned starting your own brokerage, your own practice. Uh, a lot of our listeners are interested in a side hustle, interested in doing their own thing. How are you uh, able to make that transition so successfully? And what was the, what was the first uh, first few years like? Oh my God. Um, so it's funny because when I was in banking, 
you know, I had got offers of like, hey, you know, go and do, you know, self-financial like investments and things like that. And I'm like, I never want to start over. I'm like, and so that's why I said like banks hogtie you because they treat you on a financial basis very well. Um, but as far as starting it, it was one of those situations where it was like, I wasn't going to be hanging around in the banking world any longer. Cause you know, to be in banking, you got to jump from bank to bank to bank and, and really, you know, escalate your career. So it got to the point where the bank I was originally at bought the bank that I was at and I'm like, nah, I'm out. See ya. And so I kind of got pushed into it. Um, but the first couple of years were tough. I mean, most people like, interestingly enough, real estate, if you go and jump into a brokerage, like on a residential basis, you're up and running and starting to get cash flow or income coming in within three to six months. Commercial, that is not the case. You know, it's it's a much longer timeline to success. You have a much more sophisticated client that you're working with, either listing side, buy side, whatever, you know, style of client you're repping. So the first year was, whew, I think I loaded up all my credit cards. I was, I was sitting there like banging the limit, you know, every other uh, month and then paying off what I could. And then, you know, I hit my first big deal and just wiped out all my credit cards. Um, and I'll tell you what, I was like, yes, I did it. And then I'm like, I got nothing out of that commission. I just got rid of my debt. So it was really difficult. And I think the thing that really helped me look at it is, and I try to talk to other brokers and agents about this is marketing was one of our biggest um, competitive advantages. And so the way I looked at it is like, okay, I'm going to max out the sign ordinance when I put signs on properties. I'm not just going to put a little thing. I'm going to look at, okay, 32 square feet. Let's do it. I'm doing a four by eight. I'm painting this building. I've actually painted buildings, like whatever they let me do. And then I looked at the cost. I'm like, all right, if that's a $500 sign, if I can make $1,000 on this on this deal, I get a year-long billboard, plus I make 500 bucks. And that's the way I think I looked at it. So I did. I mean, we spent a shitload of money the first three, four years. Because, I mean, I think I have like 150 signs now, 160 signs. So, I mean, printing cost is exceptional. So there was a ton of it upfront of expense. So it was tough. Well, thank you for painting that picture for us. So you did a good job of establishing why the bank was no longer a viable solution for you and how difficult the transition was and how you were kind of able to, to make that move. Any any thought, and the, the lending background was in commercial real estate, but as you mentioned, the shorter um, upstart for residential real estate, any, any thought on doing both, doing just residential, or was it always commercial for you? So I did, resi I, it, I did residential for a little bit. Um, but I immediately found that out that wasn't for me. And and the reason being was, you know, everyone talks, I just actually put out a video about this, um, about the differences between residential and commercial. And I don't think you can do both well. And here's the reason why is because, and I know there's tons of people out there, but one of the biggest questions I get, once I get legitimate, you know, deals, because on the business side, they're going to be like, well, how many houses have you sold? None. I haven't sold any. Last time I sold a house was like three years ago. And the reason why I got out of residential is because somebody comes to me and they say they want, you know, to have something that fits in this box, or as I call it residential, it fits, it ships, right? So three beds, two baths, two garage, half, you know, half acre lot. Okay. I bring them that in the town they want. And they're like, mm, I don't like the color of the walls. Well, 
Zippy hit Sherwin Williams for 150 bucks and paint the damn walls would be my f- a, a, immediate feeling. As opposed to commercial, they're like, they walk in and they're like, oh, cool. We're just going to blow all these walls out. So, you know, they understand what they're looking for. And also the interesting part about commercial is no one property fits perfectly. Traditionally, it always needs to be improved to fit them on a turnkey basis. So, and also there's multiple asset classes. There's all different parts of each asset class that has importance, but may not have importance in another. So I love the complexity of commercial. And that's why I say when you're working on commercial, you really have to dedicate your time to that craft. Uh, I I agree with you that it's, if not impossible, very, very difficult to do both well. And most likely you're doing neither uh, at a very high level. So that's that's a great answer. Um, being a managing partner, that is, and we talked a little bit about this offline, that's two roles that you are working as a broker in some deals, but you're also managing a company, running a business and managing and leading employees. So how is, how has that looked like as the continue, as the company has grown and, uh, you know, your role has evolved? Well, and I think that the, the way that when I started off, it was like scorched earth. I took any listing possible, whether I knew it was going to sell or whether it, I, whether it was going to sell or not. And it was just to get signage and awareness up. And when you look at any, you know, sales funnel, you're looking at, you know, awareness, interest, decision, action. If you want to go to Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, which is one of my favorite sales movies of all time, with Alec Baldwin. Um, but it was all about awareness, front loading. And so, you know, I took on anything. I don't care if it was a 500 square foot office, I took it on. And as we progressed and as I brought and bootstrapped agents to brokers and brought them in, um, you know, my production would then be pushed down to them. So I'd be the listing agent. I'd give them the buyer or tenant leads. Um, that would cut their teeth on and understand the diagnostics we created as far as how to vet a client really quickly if they're ready or not to go into a lease or if they're ready or not to buy a property. Um, and so I thought that that was a really, you know, it wasn't, I'm not recreating the wheel, but I looked at the residential model of how to build a team um, but also I had no real capital. So I'm, how how am I going to be able to train these people? So in a world of literally residentials, black and white and commercials, a little ton of white, a little tiny bit of black and a ton of gray. So there's far more liability. How do I protect these people and the clients to make sure that we don't get into a situation of liability? So as I started, it was more transaction focused. And now as I've grown, it's it's more about a larger deal as opposed to a smaller deal. And I hand those off to agents and brokers within the office um, and they can manage that deal flow of something that's of a certain size or below. Um, and then understanding the complexity of a deal that you work on and then educating them at our you know weekly meetings or one-off coaching sessions or whatever it may be, which is more of the world that I'm going into now, which is building the brokerage and, you know, through the complexity of the deals that, you know, I work on, you know, really trying to educate the team so that when they're at that point, which they will be, they have a skill set or an acumen that can, you know, take something like that on. Okay. that Thank you for that. And as you mentioned, weekly meetings, coaching sessions, I was at a breakfast yesterday that the phrase came up, you know, culture eats uh, process systems for breakfast. So, Having the right folks on your team, having you know team building be part of your interaction with them and skill set, how do you develop your office culture to kind of differentiate from your competition and to be the team that you want to work on and lead? 
So that's a great question. And I agree 100% with whoever said that. Culture crushes everything else. Like, And I can tell you right now, you have a salesperson that's a cancer on your team. I don't care how high of a producer they are. If they're a cancer, they're going to create and spread that and it's going to kill your company. And Gary V, I was watching, uh, um, Gary V is one of the people I watch, which everybody watches. Um, but he was talking about, you know, to somebody and they were talking about, oh, we just uh, finally had this, this cancerous salesperson leave. And they were so happy about it. And Gary's like, why are you happy? And I was like, what? This is great. I got rid of them. Or they got, they, they left. And he's like, yeah, but here's the deal. You didn't terminate them. So they wrote the narrative. You didn't. So you didn't have an opportunity to reinforce the culture that you're okay with and that you support in your company. And so culture is everything. And to me, like, I mean, we have Nerf guns in the office. Like, you know, we have like last night we had a call night, you know, and we had like, you know, we had it, you know, catered and like, you know, it's really about, I call people here family. Like, you know, if I can't, you know, stand behind, you know, taking a bullet for somebody, then you shouldn't probably be here and you don't align with it. And the biggest, most important thing, I don't care what anyone says, the most important thing to me, one word, coachability. If you are not coachable, you will not be in this company. And the fact of the matter is coachability encompasses so many different things. And you can say respectful, you can say hustle, but coachability throws all of those into one. And if you can't be coached, you shouldn't be on a team. And that's where I think culture is extremely important. And, you know, because you can do a process procedure and unless you have the coachability and you have the empowerment and the buy-in from people, who cares if you have those? Because no one's going to follow them anyways. So culture kills everything. Okay. So I can see that we are aligned in a, a lot of how we build teams, run teams, and view culture. Coachability was not the word I thought you were going to say. So I want to follow up on that. How I, I've yet to meet anybody who said, no, I'm not coachable. So I'm sure no one's volunteering that mission up front or that admission up front. How do you, how do you determine if somebody is indeed coachable? And is that something that something, something you can learn after the fact? I, I don't think you can teach coachability. I, I don't think, I think that's an intangible where, you know, one of the things I say a lot is the day you stop learning is the day you start dying. Right. Or if you're not progressing, you're regressing. Because even if you're standing still, people are passing you now, you're not moving forward. And so if you, I think that's something where there's like, you can incentivize, you know, upward mobility, right? But the natural yearning for it is a real intangible, like somebody, you know, that it's, it's so, it's so interesting. And it's, I think it's very hard to realize because everyone's like, oh, I'm coachable. And so that's where a lot of hiring mistakes come in. And I think when, so like what I run on any type of agent I hire is I run a predictive index, um, which is a personality assessment. I use a five love languages test, which everyone's like weirded out by because it's love. But I, I translate, you know, love in a personal relationship and how you give that and want to receive it to work as the respect and the incentive and the language that somebody wants to be incented by. So, and if you guys, if the people that are listening to this haven't checked those out, you should totally check them out. And the reason being is if somebody's about acts of service, they're going to get in the trenches with you and they want you to be in the trenches working your ass off with them. Or if they're, you know, um, you know, quality time, they're going to want you to sit down with them, which is a hard one for me because I'm go, go, go. But I have to reel myself back and understand 
what does that person need from me? Because at the end of the day, people don't leave. Managers lose people. They don't leave. It's because you didn't help them the way they needed to be helped. Help. You didn't give them the tools that they needed to be great. You didn't compensate them the way, which is the last. And that's why I said it last. That's why people leave. If somebody loves what they do and loves where they work, they don't leave. And if they do, it's your fault. It's it's a hundred percent. And the reason being is if they don't align, you've got to get rid of them first to make sure that you reinforce, reinforce that culture, which is something I just did, which is not easy, but I just did it because it was, and I'll tell you what, the company's operating at such a higher capacity now. So coachability again is not, I don't think it's something that can be taught. It's something that has to be recognized on their own terms. Um, if they don't have it already, a dramatic, a traumatic or a large event in their life has to create that. And traditionally, that's a, a major failure, which will then create the coachability because ego plays a huge role in someone not being coachable. But that's a good answer. And uh, the, the notes I took down, first of all, I will post to the uh, predictive index in the five love languages. So if any of our listeners want to check those out, that'll be in the show notes. Uh, I, I don't know if you've done it pers- uh, purposefully, but as you describe how you have built your team and why people will leave, leave managers specifically, you kind of indirectly described your experience at the bank, at least to me, they sound similar that yep. uh, you got kind of jaded by the situation there. Um, and then just kind of lastly on that, I think you do a real good job of explaining why coachability is more inherent and not something you can pick up because, because of the, uh, because of the way that it permeates everything that you do. Um, I did want to just go back to one of the things that you mentioned earlier that I think is, uh, really, uh, creative and insightful that I, I don't think we see a lot of that in real estate in general, real residential or commercial, but the marketing piece that you referenced, the way to, uh, kind of get your name out there doing things that are not every other company is doing. So how did you come upon the idea of maximizing number of signs, size of signs, getting your name out on buildings. How did that come about? So it actually goes back to my first startup. So I had a tech startup and I went through an accelerator, uh, like an entrepreneurial accelerator. And I learned, um, so Stephen Blake was a professor at Stanford University. And he came up with uh, what was called Lean Launchpad. And essentially the whole purpose is, is, you know, most people when they build a business, they go into a room with a couple people and they bang out a business plan. And traditionally, the 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 viability of that is very low. And the reason being is because they didn't use the scientific methodology. And so what his principles were was use the scientific methodology of, you know, coming up with a hypothesis and then creating a test or experiment, gathering the data and exact like in, and then validating or invalidating that hypothesis with the results. And so what I did on my first one was not that because I was that was ego, right? It was I thought I was I thought it was an awesome idea and it was a great idea, but the, the world was not ready for it. And had I asked people and used the scientific methodology, I would have realized and not wasted four hundred thousand dollars of investor money on an idea that the world wasn't ready for. So when I then went to this business, I looked at it and I was like, I need to listen to my clients better. I need to listen to the prospects, the people that would be interested in my product better and see what their biggest pain points are and see how people are not relieving that pain. And so the biggest things I heard are, holy shit, Jeremy, you called me back. And I'm sorry if I'm swearing. I have I, I talk like a sailor. Um, so number two was, 
I, I, some guy just came and put up a sign and then I never heard from him again. And I don't even know what's my, like, and then I talked to people and they'd be like, I don't even know what the guy did. Like people literally trashed commercial brokers. And I'm like, okay, so if I listen to this right, which I would hear all the time, no one's getting back to people. Number two, no one's communicating with what's going on on their property. And number three, they're like, I don't even know what they did. They just put a sign up. So my whole thing was the marketing sucks. There's no communication and there's no responsiveness. So that's what we built our whole company on is those three uh, uh, pillars of success. The marketing was great. So what we did is in this market, we were the first ones to do video on every single property. I don't care if it was a 500 square foot office. We did video of it. Blasted it on Facebook, blasted it on LinkedIn, Instagram, like you name it. We blasted it out everywhere. Um, we did drone footage. We did, you know, time lapse footage of, you know, um, of intersection and termination points. I mean, you name it. We tried to, we tried to. So if somebody was an out of state buyer that didn't know Springfield or Hartford, you know, they would be like, "Wow, okay, I know this like it's my backyard." And then I'd put a sign up because it's a billboard. People pay thousands of dollars for a billboard. And guess what? I don't have to pay shit. So I'm going to throw a sign up, make it as big as I possibly can and make it as generic. So for sale, for lease, no, nothing property specific. And if it was property specific, I'd fire a rider on the bottom of it. So I'd put up a V sign four by eight on both sides where I knew the traffic count was 20,000 plus on a daily basis. And I'm like, that would have cost me five grand a month. Nope. So I'm like, as long as I can make that back, and I know I can sell that property, it's a win. So I just looked at what is my ROI on the money I'm spending. And as long as I can get a 2x return on it, it works every day. But when I first started, I was like, I don't care. It's it's a sunk cost now, but I'm getting the marketing that I need. And the number one thing every single person said about SR Commercial, and by the way, other brokers shit on us like crazy. They were like, oh, look at him in his videos. Great. Hey, thanks, buddy. Guess who's all doing video now? All of you people. And guess who's got exclusive with the video company that built it? Me. So that you can't use them. So I built something that now they all like, we're like making fun of me and now they all have to use it because they're required because it's expected in the market. Love it. Right, so that answers that question. You use professional videography. You're not shooting everything hand, every yep. time. Right. Um, and I, I'd love that you established that communication, responsiveness and expectation setting just kind of explaining, here's how this is going to go, is all the only bar that you really have to jump over to get started and say, Here, here's what the expectation of the market is. Here's how I can do better than that. I love that. Yeah. Um, and then the marketing is just brilliant because, like I said, it's not something you see a lot in real estate, and it's more of what is what is my competitor going to think, say, I, I don't think out of that box, and, and you did, and you you illustrate why it was effective and why it makes a lot of sense. Um, changing gears for a moment, we've talked a lot about what your day-to-day looks like, what your real estate background and uh, where your company is going. What do you do when you're not in the office, when you are not helping uh, broker commercial real estate deals? Um, so I do invest personally. Um, one of the biggest efforts, and obviously, um, I love my family. I've got three kids, um, got two boys and a girl. Um, and so the other thing is I just try to spend as much time with them as I can. Um, because the idea behind this whole entire business model is not to do it for the rest of my life. It's to give me the freedom to, to build, 
you know, my time with my family. Um, but as far as like some of the other endeavors, I mean, I unfortunately have an addiction to building things. Um, and it's, and it's a, it's a blessing and a curse. Uh, but I'm working on this uh, new thing. It's called uh, Nucleus Commercial Real Estate. And one of the biggest things when I jumped into this, and I think a lot of people will experience this if they get into commercial is, you know, residential, everybody helps everybody. You got a co-broke, we got to work together. In commercial, there's none of that. There is none of that. The the percentage of you double-siding a deal and being a dual agent is about 80% as a commercial broker. In residential, it's about 12. So, um, there is an expectation as a listing broker that you're going to double side. And so the barrier to entry that is created is exceptionally high in commercials. So no one wants to help you succeed. Everybody wants to see you fail. And so one of the things that after ex feeling that from brokers who were my like vendors and my referral sources when I was, I was helping them when I was a commercial lender, I thought it was going to be this grand reception. Nope, nope. It looked like Silent Hill and it was like literally like no one was going to help me. And so I wanted to help create this system. So I teamed up with uh, Alicia Shepard at Keller Williams Commercial and she owns a, a company called Nucleus. And we're going to bring and we've already started um, a podcast uh, that goes out and talks about, you know, deal flow and commercial, you know, transactions, uh, like overcoming certain objections within transactions, but also giving you tips and tricks and helping educate people. And then to also, you know, step up one on that is giving on demand videos to get you help get you started. Um, more to like what we're, how I'm talking here, not like, well, hello, I'm Jeremy and I'm going to teach you commercial real estate. Like no one wants to hear that. Like they want real. And so that's what we're rolling out. And that way it can, if you have some interest in getting into commercial, you now have an outlet and it's not, you know, it's people that live it, dream it, do it every single day. And so uh, that is my new passion project because I wish I had, you know, mentorship, masterminds, and a more of an outlet to figure out how do I do a land lease? What's the formula? And that's the one that sticks out to me because I literally asked everyone under the sun, people in California, Texas, I just search people and they're like, that's proprietary. I'm like, dude, you're in California. How are me, how is me, Jeremy Casey in Massachusetts going to be, you know, your competitor? I'm not. And so I think that is really needed in the market right now. Um, and that's one of the reasons uh, that I'm I'm doing it on the side right now. I turned forty a couple of years ago. I've been working for you know twenty plus years. I have not been. I'm never at an end of shock at how uncollaborative people are in all fields, all times, and that their willingness to share, uh, even if it's simply an introduction, simply this is how we do it. And I have no worries that you're going to steal what I do because you're thousands of miles away. Uh, I, I'm I, I'm always shocked at that. Uh, so I, I, I've seen that as well. Um, I do want to point out, though, that I do think you're in the right field because I asked you what you do outside of work and you very passionately answered getting back to a, another commercial real estate project that you've launched. So clearly <laughs> you're doing something that you love. And, you know, as you talk about it, I, I can I can see the enthusiasm uh, just com coming from uh, from your description. Uh, so where can our listeners find you, Jeremy, if they want to connect directly or learn more about any of your endeavors? Yeah, so you can uh, follow me on Facebook at Jeremy Casey Real Estate, um, or you can uh, search us at SR Commercial. So that's SR Commercial. 
Um, and that's srcommercialre.com. Um, but if you want to find us on LinkedIn, whatever, uh, if you have questions, if you're interested in whether it's Nucleus, if you have questions, I'm not full of shit. I'm willing to help. I really, I, it like the, the fact of the matter is the, the most important thing to me is doing cool shit with cool people. And if, if you're not helping other people, what's your purpose on this earth? Seriously. It's a, I mean, like, what's the point of just keeping knowledge to yourself? And the fact of the matter is, and I want to leave on this because you said a really great point is, you know, sharing knowledge and somebody going to steal it from you. The fact of the matter is, and I can tell you this unequivocally, and I had my intellectual property stolen from my first startup. Would I have changed it? Absolutely not. And the reason being is because I didn't execute well enough on that, that company. If I executed better, we would have we would have crushed it. And if timing aligned, but one of the biggest networking organizations in the world stole our IP and I could have cried about it. No, I went and started another company, you know, got up, dusted myself off and did it. But I will tell you right now, if you share information, you're going to get tenfold back and no one's going to do it as well as you did. Because uh, the biggest thing when you're starting a company is passion. And so I can tell you right now, if you're ultimately passionate about something, no one's going to keep up with you. I don't care how you literally could show them the whole deal. So when it comes to that, you need that sounding board and you need to be sharing information. And that's what this is all about. So hundred percent reach out to me. I'd love to answer anybody's questions. So we'll post all that. And as we said, if people aren't even picking up the phone, they're not communicating with their clients, no need to worry about them stealing your ideas because they can't even exactly. do the basics. So Jeremy, this was a ton of fun. Thank you for joining us. And I look forward to next time. Awesome. Thanks, Mike.